Bitcoin solves the problem that people are fallible and corruptible in a very simple solution. It doesn't make people infallible or incorruptible. It takes people out of the equation. Welcome back to the ninth episode of the Dumbest Guy in the Room podcast. I am your host, Eric Rao. Today we have Tomer Strolight, our second Canadian in a row, and we jump into many things along the Bitcoin rabbit hole, including how Bitcoin is a choice that we have to make, the decentralized network that is Bitcoin and the network effects that stem from it, how Bitcoin has integrity, and many other things. Tomer does a great job of explaining things to us at a base level, but we also do get pretty deep. So I hope you're ready for an awesome episode and some really fun knowledge coming from Tomer. Don't forget to check those show notes for some great resources, and I'll catch you after the show. Welcome back to this episode of the Dumbest Guy in the Room podcast. I'm excited to announce that we have Bitcoin author and the rabbit hole Sherpa himself, Tomer Strolite. Welcome, Tomer. Thank you. Nice to be here, Eric. Appreciate you jumping on today. Um, how's everything been going over there in the, in the Northeast? Uh, things, are going, things are going good. They're slowly starting to get back to normal. I managed to eat at a at real restaurant. For the first time in like 18 months with my family yesterday it still had to be outdoors but it was really it was really really nice we went to a nice place uh to celebrate the slight return to normal and i i live kind of in the path where airplanes in the toronto airport here go overhead and it's been silent for the last year and a half practically i'm starting to see more airplanes in the sky so i'm i'm hoping that humanity is starting to return to normal after this crazy period Always good th- signs when things start to get back to normal, for sure. Um, well, Tomer, if you don't mind, could you just give us and the reader a little bit of background about yourself and uh, who you are? Sure. Um, I, I'm 51 years old. I live in Canada, immigrant. I immigrated here as a child. I was born in Israel. And I um, have, have, have lived here all my life. I, I mostly had a career as a business person. So I graduated with an MBA in about 1994. I worked uh, in a number of in a number of jobs, but the majority of my career was actually in the media space. I uh, I helped the largest newspaper in the country uh, start their website. I was there the night it opened. They hired me to help launch their website because that's how long that's how old I am and how long ago that was. And I spent most of my career uh, leading and developing digital media products uh, for for them. Uh, I also did some corporate development, some uh, private equity work in, in my career. Uh, I came across Bitcoin in 2013. I used to joke uh, when, when I was doing the private equity stuff and people were pitching business ideas at me and they'd come to me with a PowerPoint and say, how much do you think my business is worth? I would joke with them. I'd say somewhere between zero and all the money in the world. And they were dissatisfied with that answer. And when I first came across Bitcoin, I read the white paper and I'm like, oh, my God, this is either going to be worth a zero or all the money in the world. And, uh, and so that was my beginnings of tumbling down the rabbit hole myself. I, I've had a number of other jobs in the last eight and a half years since first stumbling on Bitcoin. But I've been obsessed with Bitcoin the whole time. 
and I've written a little bit about it here and there. I was quite involved uh, in writing uh, under a pseudonym during the Fork Wars of 2017. I wrote a lot of essays. Reddit was really where the, all the audience was at the time, not, not Twitter like it is today. And uh, learned a lot more about Bitcoin during those Fork Wars. And, uh, but I was exhausted afterwards because the Fork Wars was really kind of three wars in one. There was the attack on Bitcoin, which was the attempt to not activate segregated witness by Bitmain. That was followed by the attempt to compromise with Bitmain, which was the attack from the New York Agreement Group, where eight corporations tried to uh, bargain with Bitmain and the user base to get us to hard fork which also we resisted. And then there was the, the actual hard fork that Roger Ver and Bitmain launched, which went, which we now call Bcash. And, um, which was all, and these were all launched kind of one right after the other, right after the other, just when one. And so a lot of us who put in our energy were thoroughly exhausted by that. And so I kind of, I, I went to recover uh, and stopped writing about Bitcoin. And, uh, and it was, was just busily working away until 2020 when I found myself not working anymore because of all this pandemic stuff and found that I had a lot more that I wanted to say about Bitcoin again because it had been building up inside of me for two and a half, three years. And so that's when I decided I've got this time, I'm, I've got these ideas, I'm going to dedicate my time to writing about Bitcoin. And that's what I started to do. Very nice. And we, we definitely appreciate your writings. They've been uh, very influential and a lot of people are able to use those and help send out, send them to other people and kind of like, uh, like your tagline is uh, the rabbit hole Sherpa. So, you know, a little guide down the rabbit hole. So what was it when you read the white paper, you know, back in 2013, that, that really stood out to you and made you realize that it was in fact, either zero or all the money in the world? Yeah, I guess I'd had two shocks in my life on a monetary basis. And the first one, I don't even really know. I think my parents must have told me about it because we were immigrants from Israel. And back in those days, they had these monetary devaluation events um, and you couldn't take your money out of the country when you left. So the, the Israeli currency used to be called the lira and then they devalued it and they called it the shekel, which I think was like a hundred to one. And then they called it the new shekel, which was another 10 to one. So they were just taking zeros off of the money. And I knew that this could happen, but I was really little at the time. And then, um, and then 2008 happened and I was already an executive at a large company. I was working my ass off to earn money for the company. And I saw I don't know, making a million dollars here or $10 million there, or even sometimes making 30 or 40 or $50 million over a couple of years. And it took a tremendous amount of effort. I, and to make the profit, like a couple of million dollars worth of profit off of earning $50 million worth of revenue was just a tremendous amount of hard work. And I saw $800 billion printed into circulation in one single day as a bailout for people who blew that much money. And I realized all the effort that I was putting in and that all the people who I was working with was, were putting in could just be erased, uh, could be flooded over, swamped by the stroke of a pen. And that the game was, I, I knew deep down inside the game wasn't fair. I was still very much into innovation and building value. And then I just saw more and more and more of this, uh, of, of the game not being fair uh, is, is the way that I'd put it. And so when I came across 
the white paper, I saw a game that was fair. Right? Like there's nobody without doing any work can print 800 billion bitcoins because they fucked up. Like nobody can print any bitcoin without doing any work. That made a lot of sense to me. The supply cap made a lot of sense to me. The decentralization that anyone could participate, anybody could leave at any point in time, anywhere in the world without any permission. All you needed to do was generate a random number and you're in the system. You never had to identify yourself. So this was for everybody, everywhere in the world. And I could see how dominant a value proposition that is to being the subject of some bureaucrat who doesn't respect money because they can conjure it out of thin air. Like I'm easy, it's easier to articulate my thoughts on this now that I've thought about it for eight years. I just felt it more emotionally at the time. Like I knew I was overwhelmed by everything that was going on in the white paper. There was cryptography, which I didn't really know very much about. I knew a little bit about it, but not, I've, I just knew the parts about it that it was used to encrypt and decrypt messages. And we don't do any of that in Bitcoin. Not like nothing's encrypted in Bitcoin. We just use the features of cryptography that allow us to digest things and to prove and to prove things rather than to hide things. Uh, so it's it's the the other side of the cryptography coin. But I knew that there was something really special here, and it was introduced to me by someone who I knew to be a good thinker and a solid computer scientist. And so I I took a lot of time to to study it. Uh, but but that was the initial reaction, and may, maybe the initial reaction of that being, oh, this is either going to fail or it's going to be all the money in the world. Uh, probably came from that part of my subconscious that used to make that joke that I told you about, right? And I'm like, oh, Jesus, sometimes uh, satire becomes reality. Very nice. Uh, yeah, it's kind of definitely ironic how that played out, you know, in your head and then led you to really start doing the research and diving in, making you intrigued. Do you yeah. remember where you were when you uh, first read the white paper? Okay, so it could be a false it could be a false memory. I think I was at the office that I was working at at the time. I was running the private equity office of a large financial company that was headquartered in Montreal, Canada, but I, I was running their Toronto office. And I, again, I think someone on Reddit who I who I'd met had sent me this thing. I, I hadn't heard of Bitcoin yet, so I, it was in a different it was in a philosophy Reddit. And he sent me. He says, "Have you ever heard of this?" I said, "No, I haven't." He said, "Oh, you should read about it. It's computerized money." And I, and I and he said, start by reading the white paper. <laughs> and so I, I'm pretty sure I was at the office uh, when I started reading it. And I got through to the very end, if I recall correctly, the first time. And there were parts that I had. I mean, I have a copy of it behind me, but maybe people are listening. Uh, when, when you start seeing lambdas and exponents of things, I, I started saying, I, I don't really understand what this is. But I followed it right up until there. And that's like, that's of the... Uh, of the 12 sections, I followed it right up until section 11, uh, and it kind of made sense to me. So I was like, okay, I need to, I need to get further into this. And, and that was, I was asking my friend who'd introduced me to it a lot of questions, and I found a course um, that was being offered by Princeton about it shortly thereafter, and just spent tons and tons of hours, tons, like crazy obsessive amounts of hours trying to understand it yeah the the understanding journey is it's all about time that you're willing to put in and mm -hmm. i i was a lot later the game i think my my experience was you know 20 last year 2020 was when i really started to 
put put the two pieces together. Um, and, and you saw the printing in 2008. I saw the printing at the start of 2020. And it really kind of just started to open my eyes to look toward an alternative. And while I'd been exposed to Bitcoin for a few years, I had never, and I understood the propositions as far as, you know, the, the having algorithm and the, the fixed supply cap, but I never truly understood deep down, like how, how it could really change absolutely everything. And so then I read the white paper. I remember sitting at my girlfriend's house and I, tore through the white paper on my phone, pulled it up on my laptop and had a couple of different things going. And I was like, how did I miss this for so long? Mm-hmm. Um, but one, one thing that you've talked about in your writings, and I think it ties in perfectly is the choice that it takes um, to, you have to choose Bitcoin. You have to constantly choose Bitcoin right. because it is currently an alternative form of money. So yeah. that, that to me was a theme that I saw in almost all of your writings, whether it was like at the top level of your writings and some things that you wrote, you wrote di- directly about choosing Bitcoin and in other ones, I felt like it was an underlying theme. Mm-hmm. Was, was that intentional um, along all your writings? And have you noticed that that, that is the case? Yeah. yeah, you know, I set out to write this Why Bitcoin series. One of my strengths had always been being a concise writer. And I know that we live in a time where people don't have a lot of time. And, there, and there's already a lot of great writers in the Bitcoin space who write longer pieces. And, um, and I, I had been writing a few, I had started writing again and I had floated a draft of, of one article in front of a friend. And he said, you know, Tomer, you really need to answer the question why, like why, why should somebody care about this thing, this topic, I, I was writing about self-sovereignty at the time. He said, why should anyone care about being self-sovereign? And I, it was really good advice. And I cleaned up that article and I, and I published it. And then I said, you know what? There's so many questions why that people have about Bitcoin. I'm going to write about why I'm going to write all these things about why Bitcoin this and why Bitcoin that. And I, and I floated in a group, a telegram group that I was in with a bunch of other smart Bitcoiners that I was going to do this. And some of them were familiar with a little bit of my writing and they were very enthusiastic. And they said, oh, here's a whole bunch. I said, give me some titles. And they gave me like, I was shocked. They gave me like over a hundred titles. I think 130 titles in, in the span of like 30 minutes uh, from, from a dozen or so of these people. And so I put them all in a Google doc and, the next day I sat down, I picked one title. I can't remember even which one I did, but it, you can imagine it's like, why does, why does Bitcoin have a 21 million cap or why does it have this? Or uh, they got all of these very mechanical things about Bitcoin that people hear, why does it use encryption? And, um, and I, it was, a, I couldn't get anything out of me, right? Um, it just wasn't really there. And so I went to bed that night and I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and the first of these articles was, came to me in my sleep. And I grabbed my phone and I wrote it down. It was called Why Choose Bitcoin, which you picked up as the theme. And it was this massive integration that came to me in my sleep. It's sure you, you choose it well because it's scarce and because it's divisible and because it's secure and because it's decentralized. And it's like all these reasons that people give this long litany of reasons as to why you choose Bitcoin over some other money. But what came, what came to me is like, why is Bitcoin so good? And it's because it needs you to choose it. It has to get better. It has to be great. It has to be the best thing out there because it has to be chosen. It's not forced on you at the point of a gun. It's not forced on you by the fact that 30 generations before now did the way that we inherit religion or language. It's a choice. And so, of course, it has to be great. If Satoshi invented a lousy money, 
nobody would choose it. The fact that people are choosing it, they're choosing it because it's incredible. And it, it, you know, when, when someone says, when people talk about network effects and they say that something has to be 10 times as good or 100 times as good to replace the previous network, well, look, people are starting to choose this over something that's been around, if we're talking about the current fiat money regime for 50 to 70 years, depending on when you think it started, maybe even 100 years. To choose it over gold, it's for something that's been around for over 5,000 years. So how much better is this thing for you to choose it? And you've got to choose it, right? Nobody's forcing it on you, not at this stage in history. And so that, that was what I realized. And I realized, Bit, unlike gold, which can't get better because it's just an inert element, Bitcoin can get better. We added, I fought a goddamn war for getting it better into segregated witness, getting that activated. So Bitcoin gets better and you can fight for it and you can, and you can choose it. And, you, and the people who fight for it care about it because they're improving it for themselves. It's not like the fiat money regime where the people who make the rules are not the common people. They're... There are some kind of elites. We don't, I, I don't even, I, calling them elite, they seem so mediocre and so subpar and so sub-average in every aspect of, of, of what they say and what they do and how they look even. Um, I don't know what that fiat regime is, but it certainly doesn't ask you to choose it. It imposes crazy ideas on us. And so here, like, who's going to win? The one that needs to earn your choice. So I'm, go I'm going off on a bit of a, of a, soapbox here but that that was the big in indication to me and i thought why are why try to argue to someone look at look at how divisible it is compared to gold or look at how easy it is to authenticate compared to gold or look at how scarce it is compared to fiat it's like yes all of those things well why every one of those things because it has to earn your choice and so that did that was the first article in the series and i think it spurred my creativity to then go into deeper topics and other facets of Bitcoin, never letting go of the notion that you as an individual have free will and you choose. And if it's going to be Bitcoin, it's got to be great. And so there's this positive feedback. Bitcoin's going to get as great as it absolutely can to earn your choice. And the more people that choose it, actually, the more attractive it is. So the more people are going to choose it. And that's part of that's really where we're at right now in this in, in, and, and we keep going through it. I mean, you mentioned your class of 2020 and I'm class of 2013. I, I kind of view that every having is like a generation. So I'm like your grandfather. I've, like I've, I'm too having because we get we get these different spikes. We get these different classes coming in and each one learns a bunch of lessons. And then the, they and, the, and including that the price crashes at the end of these cycles. And then a new group comes in at the next cycle, which seems to be like a four a four year a four-year cycle and so the older generation teaches the younger generation and you know i've got like i've got two generations of experience in bitcoin so it's, it's kind of cool because i'm gonna i'm probably only gonna live to see my grandkids or my great grandkids if, if my kids even have kids i have kids um but bitcoin generation wise every you know i'm only three years away from seeing my great grandkids and seven years away from seeing my great, great grandkids. And I'm probably gonna to live to see all of that. I'm probably gonna to live to see my great, 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 great grandkids in, Bit in Bitcoin. And, uh, and there's elder knowledge here. So I wanted to share it. That's a, that's a fun way to look at it as, you know, you can start to give back your knowledge. And that's one thing with your writings that you're able to do is, you know, help teach the, the newer generations. And, and that's one thing I've heard from quite a few people in the space is that, 
as we move forward, the newer generations are able to learn much more quickly. Um, yes. And it, it just makes sense because there's so much more information out in the world. Like, for example, yeah. when you got in, you had to enroll in a class and, yeah. you know, do some dark, probably like borderline dark web research, basically, to start to learn about it. I, I had to and, roll my own transactions in the command line of Bitcoin Core to see how multisig would work because there was no graphical user interface anywhere for multisig after it got released. Like that, that's a that's a really good kind of example of if, if you wanted to play with multisig, I had to have some friend somewhere else in the world send me a public key. And I had to generate a, an address and I had to figure out how to find out what the public key is from the address. And then I had to create a multi-sig from the two public keys. And then I had to send some Bitcoin to it. I, mean, I, was, I mean, Bitcoin wasn't worth that much. So why we use Testnet when you use like real Bitcoin uh, to send them to this crazy address that we made up that started with a three instead of a one. And then we sent it back and forth to each other and we crafted transaction so we could see what the lightning network might be like five years from now when it finally gets released um and now now so there's so much out there there's so much material out there there's so much learning so it, it really is like you know one, one of the articles um in my series was called why bitcoin is the new frontier and it really is like we've just discovered a new frontier and the different generations are developing but there's still so much we're gonna go how long did it take when america was discovered by europeans for European culture to spread out throughout the entire nation and everything. It took, it took a long time, took generations. And we're kind of seeing, we're seeing it in this accelerated time frame because of how fast the internet works and how fast these uh, Bitcoin generations happen. But we were early settlers. I wasn't the earliest, right? I, I didn't come across on the Mayflower. Those are the people who played in 2010 with Bitcoin, but I came eventually. And then we have, um, and then we have this this new generation, which does have a lot, a lot more of a developed infrastructure around them to to learn from, to use. Like I, for me, the hardest part is actually keeping up with everything that all you young whippersnappers are using. Like, oh, got hardware wallet. Wow! Like, you don't run the software entirely on your laptop uh, and rely solely on Bitcoin Core. I'm going to have to look into that kind of those kinds of things so it's easy to get old and fall and fall behind on so i want like a internet boomer or a bitcoin boomer in in some of these regards and trying to keep up but the fundamentals are the same right like the, the constitution the bitcoin white paper it still makes all the same promises not a single promise in that bitcoin white paper has been broken and as long as we keep fighting for it it never will be and that's and that's what the civilization of bitcoin really is yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty cool to see the like how far it's come. Like you're saying, you you had to run all your own transactions, and now nowadays, like people like me and pretty much actually everyone takes it for granted how easy it is to just jump online, send a transaction to whoever, mm -hmm. wherever. Um, you know, it takes your your couple confirmations, but you don't have to actually go into the to the core program and run it yourself. And so it, it's pretty crazy how far the technology has come. And you know, one one thing that is often the Bitcoin network is compared to is, you know, the network of the early telephone or the early internet. And it, it's pretty intriguing to me to think of it like, okay, when the telephone came about, you know, there's a handful of telephones. And then over time, every new telephone that comes in the environment, it gets m so much more powerful, the, the first mm -hmm. phone and the second phones that you have, because there's that many more connections. And then the internet did that 
you know, a hundred X better than the telephone, right. because as you know, it increased in speed as inter- like computers came online. Yeah. And then it also increased in the information that could be sent rather than just voice, you know, you can start to send information to each other and view the same things. Mm-hmm. And now when you get to the stage of money, so we had text, I'm sorry, we had voice and then we had text and now we have money. And I feel mm-hmm. like money is like the underlying language of everything. And so it starts to really, you just, you create a whole new world of possibilities of how fast information and stuff can be transmitted around the globe and Mm -hmm. to people who were never exposed to that opportunity before. So it's it's, like you said, the the new frontier, it truly is a whole new world. Yeah. There's a moment of truth in the future, which most people don't fully grok yet, um, which is like right now, and Bitcoin's a part of this challenge as well, is there's so many different currencies in the world. Every time you want to move from one nation to another, you have to do these conversions. There's people who take money along the way. There's volatility between all these currencies all the time. So people have to hedge and there's a huge futures market. So there's all these people doing protection against the risks associated with the fact that every country in the world has its own money. It used to be that gold was a standard but gold doesn't work for a number of reasons, which maybe we'll get into, maybe we won't, but just historically it failed. It, got, it all got seized and it all got stopped from being, from being used. So it doesn't work, but there's a moment in the future where everybody just uses Bitcoin. Everybody, everywhere in the world, there's one currency in the world and all this nonsense and all these shenanigans over currency futures and currency trading fees and exchange rates and the different, nations border or different nations countries when you or different nations currencies when you cross borders and all that exchange it just goes away it doesn't exist as an obstacle anymore everyone in the world speaks the same language when it comes to money and those languages and that language doesn't deviate wildly from one day to the next that's going to be a really productive period in time. like that's a network effect Imagine if everybody in the world spoke the same language. I'm not speak, saying from an arts perspective, but we could all communicate really readily and re, really easily, and we didn't need translators all along the way. That's one of the types of benefits that we'll actually get from the world becoming a Bitcoin standard. And listen, this, this could be many, many years away. It could be right around the corner. I, it, it's very hard to say because it's hard to... Pre- everything's so exponential, so you don't know where, where on the exponential curve something is because it's still so small it's like less than one percent of people are using bitcoin maybe it's even less than one tenth of one percent of people are holding bitcoin but it was one one hundredth of one percent the cycle before and one ten thousandth of one percent before so a couple more of these things and it suddenly gets to be well it gets to be one percent and then it gets to be ten percent and then it gets to be a hundred percent and then it's done Um, so that's exponential growth and on top of that is it's such a small percentage of people that even own it, but it's an even significantly smaller people or percentage of people that understand what they own. Um, because, sure. you know, th- there, there's a lot of people out there who, who don't fully grasp what's going on yet, but they know it's, you know, something to hold as a hedge. Yeah. And I don't think it, I don't think it's that crucial that everybody understand it to the to that. Like, I don't understand how the Internet works, really. I've got some notion of there's packets of data and there's error checking protocols and there's routing. So like, I understand that much. Most people don't even understand that much. I spent 12 years in an internet career um, at least. So, 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 but people don't have to understand how something works 
for it to work for them. We don't understand right. how cars work. We don't understand how refrigerators work. We don't understand how microprocessors work. We just, we have the vaguest notions of th something to do with binary or something to do with turbines or something to do with internal combustion. For, we don't understand how fiat money works and yet well that, that <laughs> most people don't we do it's our it's completely arbitrary made up rules by people who make get to make them up at at their whim um and so it, i don't think everybody needs to understand it I, I think the on the flip side what's remarkable is okay bitcoin's been around for 12 years it's not a company so it doesn't have a ceo it didn't raise any venture capital never borrowed any money from the bank it doesn't have any employees doesn't have a CEO. The, the founder has gone missing. Uh, disappeared after, you know, after three years of nurturing the thing, and yet ninety percent of people have heard of it. Like, what if ninety percent of people heard? Like, ninety percent of people have heard of Coca Cola. Okay, like ninety percent of people have heard of Apple and Google. After all these tremendous successes, and after all this backing, and after all this time, uh, ninety percent of people probably haven't heard of GM when we talk about the whole world, right? 90% of people haven't heard of just about any brand uh, that, that's out there. 90% of people have heard of Bitcoin without it raising any money. Like if you really want to talk about how profound a phenomenon this is, I think that's the one that you look to to say, wow, here's, here's, here's something really, really extraordinary about this thing. Everybody's heard of it. Why? Why is it that some made up money on the internet created by some anonymous person launched into some esoteric group of cryptographers has in such a short period of time become so world famous that it rivals the greatest brands in the world with their hundreds of years of marketing spend. Why Eric, tell me. I'm I'm no I'm not the one to ask er I'm not the one to answer that question. Remember, I'm the dumbest guy in the room. That's what I have you on here for. I, I'm curious. I'll, I'll offer my answer, but I, I I'm just asking you. Why do you think? I like, would what, say. What do you think is contributing to it? I would say because as a few people like us start to dive in and really do the research and start to realize how truly broken our system is from a fundamental layer. Um, that stems back to 1971. And then like you mentioned previously, 20 to 50 years before that as well, um, mm -hmm. as we got off the gold standard and everyone starts to realize at a base layer, what's broken is the money. Then that creates people like us who wanna produce content to teach other people about how broken our system is. And then slowly the information gets out there and you have, people who fight it and you have people who fight for it and the people who fight it are usually the ones that either missed it early or stand to benefit them the leader stand to hurt the most, most from it exactly from it succeeding and so then there's there's almost like like you said the four course there's almost like battles and wars going on on the surface yeah. layer but what it actually does is it drives conversation and so it almost brings the any press is good press um style of argument because on CNBC every day they're arguing about it. But what that means is every day a few million people are hearing about it. And if mm -hmm. only 1% of those few million people go out and do some research, maybe 1% of that 1% finds the white paper. And then they start mm -hmm. to realize 
you know, read it and it clicks and maybe 10% of the people who read the white paper, finally it clicks. But if each day over time, there's more exposure to it, that drives further adoption as people start to critically think for themselves and recognize that the very fundamental layer, our current system of money is broken. And then when you zoom out, money touches everything because half of every transaction, as Phil Geiger said on my second episode, half of every transaction is the money. And so if I can't go to the store and buy a shirt for a can of beans that I have in my closet, because it's not money, I have to use money, but the or US dollars, because I'm in Portland, Oregon, but that money is broken, it starts to create bad signals, and bad signals across leads to a lot of noise. And therefore, there's confusion around price, there's confusion around value, you know, because 10 years ago, I'd go to the store and buy my shirt for $12. And now I go to the store and my shirt's $45. And if I want a nice brand like Lululemon, my shirt is $68 or $78 or whatever it may be now. And those prices like 10 years ago, when they first started, you know, the $800 billion printing were completely different numbers that we were looking at. And so over time, you start to really zoom out and realize how broken things are. So that's why I would say. Yeah. Well, you're not as dumb as you say you are. I think you're I think you're very much on the right, like not just even on the right track, like literally on, on the right track. And uh, the only things that I might add to what you're saying are just a slightly different perspective. But of the same story, it is there. there's a small group of people who recognized early on the advantages of this alternative system and the some of the weaknesses of the incumbent system. And they started to talk about it. And there's a lot of other people who knew stuff was wrong. Like if this had been launched in 2000, in the year 2000, there weren't enough people who sensed that something was wrong. But after 2008, and certainly now after 2020, people know something is really, really wrong with the money. They don't know what because it's such a mysterious system and it's cloaked. And the people who we trust are actually the people who we shouldn't trust. And, uh, and so there's a lot of confusion. There's clear answers. There's rational, logical explanations on this side of the fence. Uh, Bitcoin makes sense. Money should require energy to produce and time to produce, right? Like that's one of my articles. Well, like, why does Bitcoin take time and energy to make? And it's a very simple idea. You have to put in time and energy to earn money. So how can it be fair if somebody else gets to create it out of thin air without putting in time and energy? Well, Bitcoin can't be created out of thin air. It can't be created faster than the schedule allows, and it can't be created without energy. And so people hear that, and again, they may not put together all these great big picture ideas, but they say, that sounds fair. That's not something where I work for 20 years in my career and I manage to actually make a business that earns $50 million a year in revenue and makes $2 million a year in profit, and then somebody goes and prints $800 billion making what I did worth a tiny fraction of of what it was and they didn't put any work into it and they didn't have to find customers and they didn't have to work for real they just signed a piece of paper and and a whole bunch of other paper, pieces of paper came into existence so there's there's this uh justice um and honesty and integrity inside of this system and i, I think that's kind of what's profound you read the white paper and the white paper doesn't really speak to these moral um 
items that we're talking about here, but it really does come down to a very moral thing, and not not just like not just politically left or right or this or that. It, it's like it's right that you should be able to work and earn a living, and it's wrong that anybody should be able to get what you got for no effort. Um, and and that's what's and if you want to say the money system is broken, what what's what's really truly broken about it? That that's that's the most broken thing about it. That it's. Um, totally unfair um, in, in so many ways, the most fundamental of which is there are people who don't have to earn it to get it. And they have, and, and they're, not, <laughs> they're not any longer just skimming a little bit off the surface. They're, like, they're not like printing, well, one, we'll steal 1% per year. It's like 25% of the whole GDP per year that they're increasing the money supply and rewarding themselves with. And, and the, the cumulative uh, effects of this, the compounding effects of this, we see them when we see like, well, what, you know, what percentage of GDP is owned by the middle class and how much has it grown and what's, what's owned by the top 1% or the top 1% of the top 1% and how much it's grown. Um, WTF happened in 1971.com. If anybody hasn't been to that website, you can just see since this new regime of money came in, how nearly instantly, like within a year, deficits started to explode the divergence of the income of the middle class from the productivity of the civilization, the extraordinary reward that started to shift towards the financial class. Like it's a reality, it's there, it's there in, the, in the charts and in the basic numbers. So well, where were we? So yeah, <laughs> like, like no. so okay, no, the question was why do 90% of people know about Bitcoin? Because everybody's a victim of this thing, right? And everybody knows that there's something wrong and they're, and I would say this is a really positive sign. And everybody has some sense of hope. Right? They're not all resigned to the fact that there is no hope. If there was no hope, they would hear about Bitcoin and they'd say, don't bother me with Bitcoin. Either this is fine. <laughs> There's that famous meme of the dog sitting in the room that's on fire, drinking coffee, saying this is fine, uh, which is what the fiat system is. But people would say this is fine or they would say, don't bother. There's no hope. The powers that be are too powerful. We just have to accept our lot in life. And no, 90% of people have heard of Bitcoin. They're curious. They're researching it. Many people are buying it. Some people are fooled by shitcoin scams. They're, they want to get the hell out of the situation that they're in. All, and that's not 90% in America. That's 90% in the whole world have heard of this thing that was just invented 12 years ago and has no employees and never has had any. I mean, that's just so extraordinary. So it's an idea whose, when people talk, you know, that you cannot stop an idea whose time has come. How about, how about you cannot stop an unstoppable idea whose time has come with unstoppable software behind it, with decentralized cryptography uh, behind it, that, you know, that, that is itself unstoppable, that software is unstoppable. It's like, it's compounding the effects of unstoppability. Um, so it's just, that's why 90% of people have heard of it. And I bet, I bet that statistic is old. Yeah, I agree. And one thing that you said in there was the timing. And I think the timing was huge. And I mean, there's a reason that the, the very first block has the, mm. the post chancellor on right. the brink of the second bailout for the banks. Yeah. And right. so, you know, Satoshi, I guarantee had been working on this for longer than, you know, 2008 to 2009, mm -hmm. but luckily, was had it ready at that point in time and was able to 
you know, get it rolling and get it into the environment at a time mm-hmm. when people were searching for a new answer mm-hmm. because there were people who were, had their eyes opened to the fact that 800 billion can be created with a keystroke and that's 800 billion. So if, I mean, really rough math. If you divide that by 20, um, what would that be? 20, 20 40. billion, or I'm sorry, 20. 40. You're dividing it by 20? Yeah. 40 billion. Well, it wouldn't be. Okay. If you divide Obviously it by two, you get four, the... 400 billion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you divide it by another 10, you get 40 billion. Yep. Okay. So 40 billion, dumbest guy in the room here. That's why we have you. Um, you, you have 40 billion hours worth of time that are stolen. If people are averaging a $20 an hour salary. Um, and so when you, when you steal 40 billion hours worth of people's time, yeah. there, there have to be negative consequences because immediately any time that you've put into your savings over the past, you know, depending on how long you've been working 20, 30, 40 years, that just yeah. gets devalued immediately by the whatever percentage of the monetary environment yeah. that has just been introduced. Yeah, that was like you know. So, so it, it's interesting that Bitcoin launched on that t- in that time. Satoshi must have had it ready by then. Um, you know, he he had announced several months earlier that he was working on this thing and that he was going to release it. So it wasn't like he'd had it ready for years and was waiting for the moment. He was he had it ready for maybe a few weeks and was waiting and was waiting for the best moment. But the circumstances were definitely heating up and, and getting right for it. And he probably could have launched it almost any time prior to then. So it's kind of it is this remarkable historic opportunity that he saw to actually have this great headline from the Financial Times in the Genesis block. Um, but if if he'd even launched it a year earlier, it just wouldn't have had the same acceptance and dominance as suddenly because that bailout, those bailouts, that money printing was ringing a gong that could be heard all around the world saying something's wrong with the money. Right. And, and like the central bankers just walk up to that gong and hit it like they hit it with a three trillion dollar hammer. Right. Like gong, something's wrong with the money again. Look at how much richer we made all the really rich people in the country and look at how poor everybody else is getting. It seems to be working. We're going to keep on doing it. Let's ring it with a six trillion dollar gong. Uh, you know, so no wonder everybody in the world is hearing about this thing and like hearing the tune and saying, wow, there's one and only one escape right now. And it's Bitcoin. So how does the fixed supply cap help to really enforce the rules of making it a more fair system? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I guess that there could have been a variety of monetary policies. A fixed number is easy for a human being to deal with, right? Because it's just it's one number. It's a constant and constants are really useful to think about, right? you know, I think that there's a number, I, I, I did a tweet a while ago, I think it actually did pretty well. I, I, I said like famous constants, right? And uh, like the speed of light, um, the length of a meter. And there's a bunch of Avogadro's number, there's the Planck length, there, there's like in physics and math, E, pi, right? These are famous constants. They help you measure other things. They help you generate other things. and because they're not moving targets, they're steady. And so when we say 21 million, we know exactly what the total supply of Bitcoin is. I, and the, look, I personally tend to view it as, although 18 and three quarter million of them have been discovered and put into circulation, there's 21 million. If you own 21 of them, you own one one millionth of the total circulating supply. If you own 0.21, you own one one hundred millionth of the circulating supply. 
and uh, it's just going to take time for many of these to be released. And so it's very easy to have some standard which is unchanging by which you measure the all the money in the world is 21 million bitcoins. And, uh, and and so now you can you can start to evaluate things based off of other variables. But this one's a constant. This one can be in all the formulas. Like we can actually have a sane discipline called economics because the current discipline called economics is just in everything's everything's a variable and it's subject to arbitrary random changes by people who've been put in charge of changing those things. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse. It was one thing when the dollar got devalued once in every you know 30 years from $20 per ounce of gold to $34 per ounce of gold, if I'm remembering correctly. But then it's like, okay, it's whatever. It's like, a do you know, you, you can watch it by the second and it's changing, right? Versus, versus what? Versus gold, versus the euro, versus another country's dollar. These things are all in constant state of flux. There's no constant in economics anymore. And so the whole field is just garbage. And, uh, and it'll get fixed along with everything else that Bitcoin's going to fix eventually. It's, it's tough to build a house when your ruler's changing lengths every time you look Constantly. at it. Um, and mm -hmm. that, that's the perfect point is you can't ever measure anything. Might as well your purchasing power, your future savings or anything if everything's always changing. I mean, you, you think about if you're trying to retire today and say someone has $3 million in the bank and they want, they think they're going to live for another 20 years and they want to retire. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like, okay, yeah, right now they could probably live for 20 years off $3 million if they're smart and invest it, you know, getting a couple percent, but in 10 years is $3 million going to, we don't know. Gonna, we don't know. Do I, I honestly don't even know. Like I figured through, through this whole COVID lockdown situation and all the, all this craziness of the last year and a half, I figured we, we, kind of hunkered down, we'd saved some good money, we we're ready to resume as things got better. And so things are starting to look up. We're talking about going on vacation again. We're looking at the price of vacations. It looks like it's gone up 50% uh, versus what we remember it being last time. So it's suddenly, well, maybe we don't have enough uh, saved up for a vacation. Maybe we have to take less vacation. And, and that's no surprise given what we've seen in the money printing, right? Like it, we shouldn't be surprised, but it's still, dis even though we knew it was coming, and this is only proves our conviction and everything that we said, it's still really disappointing, right? It's look, because the fact is prices have gone up by a huge amount and the people who are going to go on those vacations are not the people who worked through the recession and worked through the lockdowns. They're the people who already had financial assets going into it and didn't have to do any work. Or maybe some of them bought a lot of Bitcoin. I'd like, but the, the handful who, you know, there's not a lot of people who bought Bitcoin and protected themselves. Uh, there's, there was a lot more of the already wealthy class that did really, really well by this, that who got, who, like, where did the government handouts go? Some of it went to help protect low income people, but the vast majority of it went to keep businesses afloat that would have otherwise gone under. And the accounting behind that has not been well audited. It hasn't been checked. And even more of it went to clearly financializing the stock market, because even though, even though everything was suffering from being locked down, stock prices didn't come down, which is like, hmm, why is that? It's just, it's a bubble of money inflating the whole thing, I guess. I thought uh, the CPI was only like, th what, 3.4% though? Yeah, like talk about, <laughs> talk about, talk about, and I, I think this is where 
they, the more they tell these fibs, you know, these tales of CPI is only 2% or it's only going to be 3% or it's only temporary or negative interest rates are good for you and inflation is good for you. And like people aren't that stupid. They're not falling for it anymore. And this is why I say I'm so like unimpressed by like this. I, either the people running this system don't have any conviction in it themselves either, or they're not tr very smart. They're not very, you know, they're not very skilled liars. Or they think we're really stupid. I like, I, and, and maybe we were, maybe we were so trusting that the system, when it was only skimming off a couple of percent a year, giving it to some elites, nobody really noticed it. It still kind of worked. It's like, it wasn't worth fighting over, right? We weren't losing 25% a year um, or more. And, and the people who were in charge of those systems, maybe were running them with a little bit more responsibility or the system wasn't as broken so that it, they could run it a little bit more stably. But like the brakes are broken on this thing and the gas doesn't work. And like, it just nothing, nothing's working about this thing anymore. And they just like, they, and the, the limited tools that they have, which is to print more money and lower the interest rates even more, just, it's like throwing fuel, it's throwing gas on the fire and it's not the, fine. The brakes are broken. The gas is stuck down to the floor and mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's no letting go at this point. It's, yeah. um, it, I yeah, was listening to, they just can't seem like, I guess maybe we're both about to say, we're listening to the federal reserve statement and it just, it sounds. It sounds like they know that what they're doing isn't helping, but they're going to continue doing it until something gets better. Right? It's like the beatings will continue until morale improves. Or this, you know, this we're just going to continue doing this thing that isn't working. Which, which there's that famous saying. I, I don't know that I quite agree with it, but it says it's, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting it to work, to, expecting different results. And I, I don't think that's insanity. I think insanity is a whole other thing. But it's clearly not smart. Uh, it's right. And and yet that's what we're to the extent that they're saying, oh, no, we're not doing the same thing. We're doing more of what we did before. Right. It's not the same thing. Last time we only put in two trillion dollars. This time we're putting in six trillion dollars. Like so now now it'll be now it'll work right. And it's like what you don't understand is just printing money doesn't actually change the economy. It redistributes the ownership of the economy to the people who you're handing that printed money to because we can't tell a real dollar apart from the one you just printed because you claim that they're both the same thing. So I can't tell an earned dollar apart from an unearned dollar. They're mixed together, hopelessly scrambled together. And it's not fair to the people who are earning dollars. And it's really advantageous to the people who are getting these unearned dollars. Couldn't agree more. I mean, one thing, uh, I was listening to a podcast with Dominic Frisbee the other day, and, and he said, you know, in 2004, he was talking to people about the flaws in a fiat dollar system. And every time he said that word, he had to explain what fiat was to people yeah. and, and try and define the terms. And now it's like, you start to see people are starting to wake up because yeah. more people have heard the word fiat. And yeah. slowly over time, you know, it's when you have a conversation about Bitcoin, you say the word fiat, you don't have a glazed look over people's eyes. They yeah, understand like, that. What's the word fiat? And in fact, I, I think what's going to happen is the word fiat is going to become so ingrained in the lexicon that it'll actually take on a meaning. And it, I mean, the word comes from the Latin meaning by decree, but it's going to take on a meaning of like fake. Right. And so people are going to say, don't be so fiat. Uh, he's so fiat, right? Like, 
uh, and it, it might actually, we might live to see this, it might actually replace the word bullshit, right? Like, that's fiat, right? Like, people will say, like, you, you just fed me a whole load of fiat there, my friend. I ain't buying a word of what you said. That's total fiat. Um, because I think that's the way that people are realizing, that's what people are realizing this fiat system is. That's a funny way to think about it, because... Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, Anthony Pompliano was on this episode of a comedian's podcast okay. and basically the comedian brought him on there to just like kind of try and learn about Bitcoin and the, the whole time you know he was talking about how he didn't really own any or he didn't own any and um, Pompliano was messing with him because he kept calling him a fiat bro and mm -hmm. you know it was like a little degrading term to him of right. uh, uh, you know throwing some shade at him yeah. and so the, I got, the word fiat's going to be an insult right it's going to be an insult or a swear word or you know, it won't be the first four letter word starting with F that becomes a bad word. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, it'll be uh, the fiat system will be we looked right. at and uh, taken to a whole new level of, of, mm -hmm. of meaning. And one, one thing you touched on a bit ago was um, Bitcoin's enforced by physics. And then yeah. as we just talked about, you know, the 21 million supply cap and the, the rules of Bitcoin's rules, and then you just spoke about um, how humans have changing rules. So can you dive like a little deeper into like how, because we, we understand how Bitcoin has its rules and humans have their own rules in the fiat system. Can you, can you touch on how like physics is used to actually reinforce uh, the rules of Bitcoin and why those are unchangeable? Yeah, I'll, um, I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> so th this is, this is what comes down to the idea that, that what we call proof of work. I'm trying to do this um, quick, quickly. Basically, there's a type of mathematical function called a secure hash algorithm. So for everyone who's heard of SHA, SHA-256, that's what the SHA stand for, secure hash algorithm. And all it is, is it's a function that takes in any input like the Library of Congress or a single book or a single word, uh, any kind of any input that could be digitized, a song. Um, and it produces from that, no matter how big it is, it produces an output that looks like a random string of 256 ones or zeros. Could be, and that turns out to be a really big number. That's as big a number as there are atoms in the universe. In the, in the visible universe, right? Like there's a two trillion galaxies we can see. If you take all the atoms in all two trillion galaxies, that's how big that number is. And there's, and there's like, it just as a comparison of holding a bottle of water, there's something like um, a trillion trillion atoms of water inside this bottle of water. Um, so that's, it's a huge, 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 huge number. So it's very unlikely that you're gonna find two inputs that come out to, this, to the same output. And it can be done really quickly. It's a very fast algorithm at creating this uh, random string, but it's always random. So if you are putting something into it and you're trying to get a value out of it, a particular value, if you're trying to get one particular value, you'll work at it until you know, the universe, you'll be working long after the universe has expired and you still won't find it. But if you're trying to find a range of the numbers, let's say you're trying to find an output that starts with 30 zeros, Right, so the odds of that are 2 to the power of 30. The only way to figure that out is to actually do about 2 to the power of 30 at computations, each with a different input. 
And that in each computation takes some energy, which is physics in the real world. And that's how proof, and that's the basis of proof of work. Proof of work is a target value within a range, a huge range, but a limit, but a limited range nonetheless. And Bitcoin only accepts valid blocks that have done the necessary proof of work. And we're not going to go into all of it here because it's like it really is a, a good 30-minute lecture as to how what gets hashed is the hash of the previous block, the header of the previous block, and all the and the root of the hash of all the transactions inside this block. So we do a lot of hashing in Bitcoin because what hashing does is it takes these huge strings and the whole history of the blockchain and represents it as a single 256-bit string, which is only 32 bytes, which is like typing 32 characters on your computer. And it, it, it's able to condense that into some other way that nobody could forge it, uh, that nobody could, could duplicate it. And so all this physics has to go into generating valid blocks. This work has to go into it. And that's the rules of what makes something valid. No decree by any fiat bureaucrat says, these dollars are real, these transactions are real, trust me, they're good. Provable math that required physical exertion, uh, physical use of energy to generate is the rule. So I hope that's kind of the explanation, right? Like the only way to make a valid block is to generate, use real work in the real world. And the, and the reason we do it, which is interesting in and of itself, well, maybe I should finish that point and then get to the reason we, the reason we do it uh, from, a, from a computer science perspective. But there's no person, like, like Bitcoin solves the problem of the fact, this is just a side note here. Bitcoin solves the problem that people are fallible and corruptible in a very simple solution. It doesn't make people infallible or incorruptible. It takes people out of the equation. And, and it, it replaces them with infallible, eternal, unchanging laws of physics and mathematics. That's the innovation. Like honestly, right there, that's the thing. That's a system, the first system we've ever had, the first man-made system that is incorruptible because the human beings are taken out of the equation. Human beings can do the work, but human beings can't change the rules. That's what we fought the fork wars over. Yeah. It, human yeah, beings it, trying to change the rules. So, and that's what, we, that's what we hold so dear and so precious. This system works because it's incorruptible. Not because we found some incorruptible leader and now we hope that you know, when he goes away and the next one comes in, they're not incorruptible. Nobody can change the laws of physics. Nobody can change the facts of math. They're like this, you know, there's these universal laws and that's what Bitcoin adheres to. And so that's why you can trust it for the rest of your life and for the rest of the existence of the universe. Yeah, what, what's the saying? Uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And mm. so, you know, if you put the, put the power to print endless supply right. of money in the hands of people who benefit from money being mm -hmm. printed, it's going to corrupt them and they're going right. to print the money. And so if you, you yeah. have to take that power out of their hands. Right. So I, I, would, I would create like an opposite saying to that, which, which is the absolute elimination of power absolutely eliminates corruption. That's Bitcoin. That's Bitcoin. Bitcoin eliminates corruption because it absolutely eliminates anyone having any power over the system. That's the power of decentralization. That's why decentralization is so important. It's the most important thing. 
it, and it's, it's an amalgam of a whole lot of different things, right? like making sure that the development is decentralized, that the nodes are decentralized, that the mining is decentralized, that everything is about Bitcoin is decentralized and, and there's a fight to be fought at every, at every layer of that within Bitcoin. But remarkably, it's decentralized at every level, sometimes almost to a fault, but, but it can never be to a fault because it's an ideal and we, we always have to keep it decentralized as much as we possibly can whatever Most costs definitely. that may bring. I like that a lot. Um, so you said, you said touched on a lot of different things there. Um, one thing I, I want to make sure the listeners know in the show notes, I'll have um, a description of Shaw 256. There's a really nice YouTube video um, that has been made. One Brown? You know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. Very, very helpful and informative video to help kind of comprehend and understand like how ridiculous, how ridiculously large, right this this number is and the algorithm um that secures it can be so um I'll, I'll make sure to include that in the show notes definitely check that out if uh you're a little confused by by the description there because um tomer tomer knows has some pretty good insight on on that stuff so that's fair it's very um, hard it's just a, it's a mind-bogglingly large number it's it's so so big that you can never wrap your head around it but what, what what's what's kind of an important thing to appreciate or just a nice, it's not important if you don't appreciate it. It's, Bitcoin's not going to stop running. But it is kind of nice to appreciate that people like Satoshi and other people who came before him, like Adam Back, who actually invented proof of work or was one of the various people who discovered proof of work, weren't so, dis, weren't so um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, intimidated by the size of these numbers. And they said, okay, they're big. I can't wrap my head around them, but I can still work with them. I can still do math with them. I can still run operations on them. And so they, they did these operations. Ralph Merkel built these Merkel trees and Adam Back built proof of work. And there's all these other people cited in the white paper here who built the first time chains, time stamping servers are called. We call it a blockchain now. And they weren't intimidated by these huge numbers. They just worked with them. And, uh, and that's kind of the advice I give to people is like, don't try to say, I got to understand how big this number is, right? You watch that video for sure. It's a fun video. It shows you just, <laughs> you know, if you had a, as much computing power as a thousand Googles and every person on the planet had as much computing power as a thousand Googles and there were 4 billion Earths like that in the galaxy and there were... <laughs> four billion galaxies like that and they were you know and you took four billion and you took something like 400 billion years you'd still only have a one in four billion chance of guessing one of these SHA-256 numbers so so you're, you're not going to be able to follow along you're just going to be able to see how powerfully compounding uh this thing is but you don't have to the computer doesn't care it just it's just processing 256 bits and cramming them and crushing them really quickly and it, it's not actually digesting the entire universe. It's just digesting one number out of those possible numbers in the universe. But that's where your security comes from, is the fact that nobody's ever going to guess if you generate a random number in this range from zero to all the atoms in the universe. Nobody's ever going to guess that number again. And don't lose it because you're never going to find it again either. Exactly. It's uh, never, never coming back if you, if you lose it and you lose your keys. What, one thing that I say, this, this, since, since people's heads are a little bit spinning, um, this is an interesting concept. So you generate one of these random numbers that's a 256-bit string, which is your private key. Which, you, know, it, you can use it for other things. But I'm telling you, it's your number. And you say, well, how can I own a number? 
Well, nobody's ever going to know this number ever again, right? If no matter how many people live over the life of the universe before it it goes, nobody's going to generate that number again. It's so random out of such a large possible range of numbers that it's never going to be known again. So it's your number and you can use it. What can you use it for? You can use it to store your Bitcoin there, right? You can use it for other things too. It's, a, it's what's called a private key in public private key cryptography, but it's your number. Nobody else in the world will ever know it, ever. Um, and uh, so you can say, you know, just like when people point out to the stars and say, oh, that's my star. Well, that's not really your star, but this number is yours in a sense because nobody else can, like if you keep it a secret, nobody else can know it. Nobody else can look at it. Everyone can see the star up in the sky, even if it's visible with a telescope, then everyone with a telescope can see it. But nobody can see this number of yours. Don't let them, because they'll steal your Bitcoin. But it's your number. And so I, I, I think that's a really cute um, consideration, because when we talk about ownership of Bitcoin, we really are talking about controlling a private key. And so we're saying, well, you own that number. And so I, I like to be explicit about it with people. It's like, this is really your own number that nobody else will ever know. You can generate millions of them. Your computer will store it, right? We, we try to use a different address, which means a different private key for every, uh, for every address we have, although we might have a master private key that generates all the others. But uh, I'll, I'll stop there with pe spinning people's heads. You can own a number is what I'll tell them. And it costs you nothing to own the number, by the way. You can, and you can, you can own a million, billion, trillion numbers that nobody will ever guess and it'll cost you nothing to own them. But don't show them off to other people because then you won't own them anymore. I think that's a really intriguing way to look at it is the ownership of a number. And that's definitely a different thought that I, than I've ever heard it expressed. So that's a cool way to you know explain that to people. Um, so Hopefully it's helpful. And if it didn't help you, just forget it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> there you go. If the last 10 minutes uh, confused you a little bit, don't worry all that's you can still understand bitcoin without yeah. knowing what yeah. what tomer just just dove into right. if the whole if the last hour doesn't make any sense bitcoin will still work for you right like it bitcoin doesn't care what i say it doesn't care if i'm right or i'm wrong it just works it still works even if i'm wrong exactly nobody's in charge so one question that comes up quite often um is altcoins and you know bitcoin is the first and so what's going to replace bitcoin the you know the myspace versus instagram conversation um, terrible analogy exactly analogy. so i would love for you to maybe give us give us a quick background of why that analogy is a, a terrible one um and then and then if you could help just kind of explain to the listeners like why altcoins in the long run will actually like not matter and trend towards zero sure. against against Bitcoin. Sure. I really appreciate that. Right. So so I can explain it. I, I'll do I'll do the following. I'll explain kind of theoretically, but I'll also explain it historically. And um, maybe also philosophically. So, Love it. you know, that way that way you've got you've got a theory. You can look to reality. You can see the reality reflects a theory. Then you have a philosophy to put it together. We'll just kind of start with historically. Every wave of happenings or what ends up happening, every, every time things get hyped in this cycle, a bunch of altcoins show up and then they all crash down to essentially zero. You can look at the coin, if you go to CoinMarketCap or any of these other sites, you just go way back and you'll see that the older coins, if they're even listed anymore, I mean, there is a website called Dead Coins, or I, I wish, if I knew this question was coming, I'd remember the name of the site, maybe you can look it up. But there's a site that lists all the coins that have actually stopped functioning, that nobody mines them anymore, nobody operates them anymore, no, 
exchange trades them anymore. And they all had their stories and they all had their promises. They're faster than Bitcoin. They're cheaper than Bitcoin. They have bigger blocks in Bitcoin. Their own, they're quantum proof. They're, like every story under the sun has come and gone and they've gone. So you can look and you can say, gee, a lot of, a lot of altcoins have come and gone. Now that's, that doesn't say, well, every single altcoin that's gonna come is also gonna go. And so that's the, that's the objection. But I can tell you, look at the majority of altcoins. They've crashed down to nothing. Many of them have shut down. Um, some continue to operate on, on vapors and, and fumes. So that's, that's kind of the first thing. Let's, let's t t talk a little bit about the theory. And there's a few important parts of the theory. First of all, there's nothing wrong with Bitcoin. Right? I think most of the FUD that's thrown against it is actually really, really mistaken. Bitcoin still does everything that it said it was going to do in the white paper. And the scaling solution, which is what the wars were fought over, is a layer two scaling solution, which, I, which again, I, th I think you can look to the real world. If you actually find, if you're just curious about Bitcoin, find someone who's running a lightning node, watch them do lightning transactions, watch that they're instant, watch that they cost one Satoshi to send whatever amount of Bitcoin you want to send over the lightning network. You don't have to wait 10 minutes for it to confirm. You don't have to spend 33 cents or even a dollar. It costs a fraction of a fraction of a penny and it's instant. Bitcoin's already doing that and it's, and it's finite. And what do none of these other coins, so that none of these other coins actually do that. <laughs> and, and, and this is what they're all chasing. What's also not true about any of the other coins? None of them have had a founder that disappeared, that nobody ever knew who they were in the first place. They're all centralized to varying degrees, but I mean, let's start with the founder. If you're interested in some altcoin, I have to watch my mouth here. Um, if you're interested in some altcoin, I bet you know who runs it. That's a problem. Okay, it's inferior to Bitcoin already because you know who runs it, because that person has control over it. They can change the, they, they are the person you're trusting. They are, we, we discussed here earlier, right? What Bitcoin destroys corruption by removing the corruptible human beings from the system. Well, if you know the leader of your coin, that's a corruptible human being. You don't know the leader of Bitcoin and the, and the person who potentially was in charge, Satoshi, had the sense and the courage and all these wonderful terms and adjectives that I would use to describe him, the sense of sacrifice to step away, step away from the fame, the fortune, the power that would come with being the, cent the one central point of failure in Bitcoin. And he disappeared and he hasn't returned and he won't return. And if he did try to return at this point, <laughs> he'd be another hero that Bitcoiners slay because we don't, we don't need him back, right? The greatest gift he gave was leaving. And this is not true about any other altcoin. We know who they were founded by. They're still usually led by somebody. They're usually backed by a corporate. Bitcoin's not a corporation. It has no employees. Ethereum has a foundation headquartered in Switzerland with a marketing team. They raised a whole bunch of money in Bitcoin, interestingly enough, initially. Uh, you know, so you're not getting a decentralized. And there's one article in my Why Bitcoin series that says why all of Bitcoin's imitators are scams. I think that's the title of it. I don't have a nice, I have much meaner words. I don't have any nicer words than scams or mistakes. Maybe I'd say are mistaken uh, would be the nicest thing I'd say, but none of them are, none of them are decentralized. And so every one of them is a step backwards to the exact same type of institutions that we had before Bitcoin was invented. 
Since none of them are decentralized, none of them do what Bitcoin does, which is remove the corruptibility of the system. And we've talked earlier on this podcast about the incorruptible nature of Bitcoin. Right? Ethereum keeps changing the money supply. It was infinite, then it was, but it was decreased. Now it's expected to be negative. It'll be something else, whatever's convenient to suit, not the users, but the people in charge. And time and again, we've seen, you know, Ethereum, which is this number two coin, make changes that suit what the people in charge want. Uh, one example I like to give is Bitcoin's proof of work algorithm has a part in it that's called the difficulty adjustment. Satoshi put it in there. The difficulty adjustment means that no matter how much work, how much more work or how much less work is done, roughly every two weeks, the difficulty required to do the work changes so that Bitcoin keeps running at a steady pace. You can't stop Bitcoin mining because of that. If you took much of the power away, which is happening right now as we speak, China's stopping a whole bunch of miners. So we're seeing slower blocks for a little bit. But then the difficulty adjustment will kick in every 2016 blocks and Bitcoin will get easier to mine and it'll speed right back up to one block every 10 minutes. It's unstoppable and nobody has to touch it, right? That's an automatic built-in intelligence into the system that makes Bitcoin unstoppable. Ethereum has the opposite thing in it. They built in something called a difficulty bomb, right? Bitcoin has a difficulty adjustment. Ethereum built in something called a difficulty bomb, which was going to stop it from being able to be mined. They defended this on the grounds that they wanted to switch to proof of stake eventually. Well, anyhow, the first deadline for the difficulty bomb came and Proof of work wasn't ready. Proof of stake wasn't ready. So what did they do? Did they diffuse the difficulty bomb? No, they came. And this is what was in the interest of developers as opposed to users would have benefited from the diffusion of the difficulty bomb at that point. Undoubtedly, it would have created some more decentralization rather than you have to depend on the bomb diffuser to come in. So what did the bomb diffuser come in and do? He moved the clock forward, right? So that another hard fork, through a hard fork. And so another hard fork had to be done once again to move the difficulty bomb forward, but it was a package deal. There were all sorts of other things in there that aided the interests of the person who could change the difficulty bomb, who could adjust the difficulty bomb. And so you can see repeatedly in Ethereum that it's not, nobody can predict its future, right? Bitcoin, everyone can predict its future. We know exactly the supply at any given point in time, in the past and in the future. Nobody can actually even really figure out what this exact supply of Ethereum is, even in the past or the present, which is kind of another running joke. But, um, but it decentral what I'm trying to get at is decentralization is the key thing in the theory of what makes Bitcoin special. And that's actually, at the same time, the philosophical answer, right? We are after a system that we can trust because we don't have to trust an entity that can't be trusted. And the entity that can't be trusted is human beings. It's not to say that human beings are bad, but it is, as you pointed out, Eric, absolute power corrupts absolutely. People in positions of authority are fallible. They may make mistakes. They may be corruptible. They may be taintable. They, they could be blackmailed. You could kidnap their loved ones, their children, and threaten them to, to do something. You can't kidnap the laws of physics and threaten them with something that they value more than being the laws of physics themselves. And that's what's special about Bitcoin and only Bitcoin. And the more you look into all these other things, if you think, oh, look, it's got someone with a Wall Street background, or it's got an advisor from who used to be the chairperson of the... That's all terrible. That's all totally destructive to the very essence of what we want. We don't want advisors. We don't want the board of directors. 
We don't want people who can be corrupted in power of the system. And only Bitcoin, only Bitcoin, out of all 10,000 of these projects, is decentralized. So there you have it. I don't even remember what your question was. Oh, altcoins, yeah. I, w I wouldn't touch one of them with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, that was, uh, that was perfect. You've already um, got fiat money. What do you, like, what do you need another fiat for? It, it, your gam you know, like I think people know, I, I've had a lot of conversations with people over the years. At the end of the day, they all confess they're gambling, people who are buying altcoins, right? It's like, oh, I think this thing is going to go up. But why do you think it's going to go up? Because I think I'm in early and I think that there's people who are going to pump it. So you think it's going to stay up? No, no, I, I know I need to get out. I need to figure out when the top is, okay? With this, maybe this is another really important point with Bitcoin. Bitcoiners aren't looking to get out of Bitcoin. We don't want fiat dollars back. We want to replace the system. Dogecoin. <laughs> do, people, do people think Dogecoin is going to last forever? Or are they like, oh my God, there's a rich man pumping up the price. If I get in now, I can get out before the rich man stops pumping up the price. Be honest with yourself if you own Dogecoin, right? That's what's going on here. You're not like a believer in the decentralization of Dogecoin. You don't believe in the technology. You don't think that they're building a lightning network. You don't think that they're bringing freedom to people all over the world. You're greedy and you think that you're in on something that's going to go up because there's some game that's being played and you're on the inside winning side of the game and that there's going to be losers later on. Admit it. Be honest about it. And then ask yourself, like if, if you want to gamble, okay, it's, it's, gamb it's gambling and just acknowledge it for what it is. But Bitcoin's a very different thing. Bitcoin's not a gamble. This is why people say, oh, Bitcoin's... Bitcoin's this highly speculative asset, right? It's like, well, no, it's totally predictable asset. I know exactly. I know there's 21 million of them. I know that it's valuable. I know it's permissionless. I know nobody can be stopped from using it, right? If, if your coin has a leader and the, a government comes up to your, your coin's leader and says, stop so-and-so from you, stop you from using it, here's his address, he will stop you from using it. Nobody can do that with Bitcoin. It's decentralized all over the world, even if they find a whole bunch of miners and say, stop accepting transactions from this address. Other miners will mine it. And there's no choice for the miners who are obeying those rules to, to ignore those blocks. They'll just stop mining valid blocks. Their whole business will collapse because they have to build on the previously found block or they'll fall behind in the blockchain because of proof of work, because of the laws of physics. So no government can pass laws that make the laws of physics go away, subordinate. I mean, we can talk, we, we could do a whole two hour podcast just on, just on the integrity of the system of Bitcoin and the absence of it in every single altcoin project that pretend, that either pretends or mistakenly believes that using some of the features of Bitcoin, like using SHA-256 or creating a blockchain, but that's still centralized, or you know, doing one of these or several of these pieces of the technology, but not all of them, is, is something that is decentralized. It's not. It's, Bitcoin is minimalistic. It does only the things that it needs to do, but it does all the things that it needs to do. It has the necessary and sufficient conditions for decentralization. And that's all it has. You just touched on that like Bitcoin has integrity, and you, you actually wrote a piece on this recently. Um, about the integrity of Bitcoiners and how it's not toxicity. Um, mm -hmm. do, you, do you want to dive into that a little bit about sure. um, your, your thoughts on that? Yeah. So like, there's a subtle distinction here. Um, Bitcoin has integrity 
And the point I was making in that article is so do Bitcoiners, the people who support and protect and defend and fight for Bitcoin. And there's been a lot of, uh, so the article is called Bitcoiners are not toxic, they have integrity. This is my most read article of all the articles I've published. Probably helps that Michael Saylor shared it on Twitter. Um, what's the main point here? So it begins, why are we even bringing it up? Toxic Bitcoin maximalist, right? There's a label that is slapped on a lot of Bitcoiners, the most passionate ones, myself. Um, toxic Bitcoin maximalist. And a lot of criticism saying, you're driving people away from Bitcoin. Bitcoin should drive people, should embrace people, bring them towards. And yet there's these toxic Bitcoiners who throw, who throw people away, who are rude to people. And so I wanted to write an article to say, well, let's, let's take a close look at what is meant by toxicity and why this behavior comes up. And again, I don't remember the whole article off the top of my head, but I, so I, hopefully in the show notes, you'll put a link to it, Eric, because it's a, it's a really good read. I, <laughs> I've heard from a lot of people. I'm not just boasting. Um, Bit, Bitcoiners are accused of being toxic because they say things that drive other people away. Well, do people just come up and say, hey, you know, I'm interested in Bitcoin. And we say, get the hell away from here. That's not the case at all, right? Bitcoiners are very welcoming. You can go on Clubhouse at any moment in time. You can go on Twitter at any moment in time to have some questions about Bitcoin. And Bitcoiners like me and other experienced Bitcoiners, and I'm sure, look, Eric, you're, what are you getting paid to do this, right? You're doing this because you're passionate about the project, right? Will make their time and their energy available to you, asking for nothing in return to explain how Bitcoin works. And, um, and you'll find a tremendous amount of it. And we celebrate when new people come to Bitcoin, right? Not just because the number goes up, not just because the price goes up, because more and more people in the world are using Bitcoin and we have more friends and colleagues and people using the network, which, which adds value to it, but which, gives the, which we're happy to see the freedom that Bitcoin gives to us also be given to other people. Uh, but some people make demands um, and there are certain principles which are inviolable, which I point out in this article, like, and Bitcoiners are not prepared to compromise on these things. Like we've already talked about, Bitcoiners are not prepared to compromise on decentralization. Right? And if somebody says, I will help the price go up if you just compromise a little bit on decentralization, Bitcoiners say, no, thank you. We think the price will go to zero if we give up on decentralization, so we're not interested. Somebody comes in and says, I can bring more people to the platform if you just compromise on the ability to run a node, which is some other de you know, compromise on decentralization, which we've had. We fought a war over it. Bitcoiners say, no, thank you. We'll wait until people can come accepting the terms of Bitcoin because we can't compromise the system. And there's a whole lot of these examples of people. I can help the number go up, I can help the adoption go up, I can do these things. If you just sacrifice something that's actually fundamental to the operation of Bitcoin. And Bitcoiners understand how Bitcoin works. And so they're not prepared to compromise any of these things that will actually lead to the wreckage of Bitcoin. And so I draw an analogy to a bridge um, in this article. And I say, imagine you were in charge of a bridge and you don't have to know a lot about bridges, but you just need to know that if they're not well maintained or well engineered, they will collapse and everybody who's on them at the time will be injured or die. And so if you were in charge of a bridge and somebody came to you and said, hey, why don't you, um, 
why don't you put in these cheaper components, these, these less reliable components? I think it'll help the value of the bridge go up. Or if somebody came and said to you, I want you to put these unreliable components in it because they're rumored to be better for the environment. Yes, it'll endanger your bridge, but it's better for the environment. Would you make that compromise? Or somebody else said, I can't remember all the examples I gave in the, I gave in the, in the article, but they try to get you to compromise on something that affects the safety of the bridge. And I, and I pointed out in the article, I said, if you accepted any of these trade-offs, it will lead to the bridge collapsing and everybody who's on it being injured or dying. But if you don't accept any of these trade-offs, then congratulations, both you and your bridge have integrity. And that's, that's kind of like the, the home run moment, because this is exactly what, we, and I wrote this article just at the time that Elon Musk, who, was, who had come into Bitcoin and not been received toxically, had been received with open arms and was encouraged to join the community. And was, it was a delight when he started accepting Bitcoin for Tesla vehicles and was signing on to the white paper issued by Twitter and Jack Dorsey saying that he acknowledges that Bitcoin is good for the environment. And there was a lot of irritation that he was also promoting Dogecoin, which wasn't clear if he was playing a joke or if he was what he was doing, because it seemed so silly and it was also memeish and, and not serious. And he didn't give a serious interview about it. But then he withdrew his support for accepting Bitcoins, citing false narrative about Bitcoin's impact on the environment, which, which other people have debunked and I'm not going to go into here. And in response to a thoughtful thread on Twitter by another podcaster, he said, well, you know, it's, it's stuff like this. It makes me want to go all in on Dogecoin and, you know, created all kinds of havoc. And, and that was a, a threat, right? That was, that was a threat to say, I need Bitcoiners to change the environmental impact, which means to let go of proof of work, which means to let go of decentralization and make Bitcoin corruptible. Bitcoiners said, no, thank you. He said, you know, I will make the price go down if, you know, rather than go up and I'll make the price of Dogecoin, this alternative thing, go up if you don't let me have my way or give me the honor. Bitcoin just said, no, we said much meaner things, right? Um, and, but what, what is it all about? It was about us not compromising our integrity. And without trying, you know, without taking longer to talk about the article than it takes to actually read the article, that's what I'm trying to get at here. And, and and the thing that is so offensive is integrity is such a virtue. We don't see much of it in our world today anymore because of the fiat system in part. We see politicians who are liars. We see teachers who regurgitate lessons that are handed down from authorities on up who don't teach students how to think. We see a medical system that just pumps people full of drugs and doesn't necessarily seek to come up with cures for their drugs, but rather treatments that are everlasting. These are things that lack integrity. So when you actually see integrity and you label it as toxic, that's a real inversion. That's a moral inversion. That's offensive. And, and that's why I wrote this article, because I think we should applaud the virtuous and we should commend the virtuous for being virtuous and we should recognize them as virtuous, not throw stones at them, not insult them. And, and it is a game played by con artists and fraudsters and thieves to label their victims as con artists and fraudsters and thieves, right? The guy in prison behind bars says, I didn't do it, you did it, right? He tries to, what's toxic is the system of money that we have, 
You know, I, I cite the dictionary definition of, to of toxic in the article. I say, this is, you know, that system is toxic. Bat you know, all these other systems that have been corrupted through compromise have become toxic as a result. Bitcoin won't. So if you want a system that's going to compromise its fundamental values, its fundamental principles, go look someplace else. Bitcoiners are not going to compromise on their integrity. And that's not, that doesn't make us toxic. That makes, <laughs> I was like that. I make no apologies for having integrity. Why should I? I'm proud of it. I'm proud of my fellow Bitcoiners who have integrity. Who's uh, a guy like Jack Mahler says in his speech, I will die on this hill. And every, you know, and people cite that and hundreds of people on Twitter say, I will die on this hill. I will die. Can you imagine if I told you, I don't know how old you are, 15 years ago that someone will release a piece of software in 2009 that 12 years later people would be prepared to die for the right to run that piece of software? Like, is that a spreadsheet or a word processor? Is it some kind of video game? But these people are serious, right? Like we have something of high, high value to us and we're prepared to defend it and we're not going to compromise and we're certainly not going to sell out for a bunch of fiat dollars that we don't think are particularly worth much. And we know that if we sold out for those fiat dollars, the people who can print more of them would just print a whole lot more and not give us any of them. So we, we're not going to fall for that scam. We have integrity. We're building a system with integrity. And... Uh, and that's who we are. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> I mean, I, get, I have a lot to say about it, but that's all I'm going to say about it right now. Otherwise, you'll need an extra long podcast. Yeah, I, I completely agree with, you know, it's your people that have the integrity to say and the willingness to say, I will die on this hill, like Jack Muller said. And mm -hmm. what's so incredible is that in his speech that he said that, you know, he was talking about helping a country adopt a new form of money, which would bring hope to the people of the country because their money won't be getting inflated and debased away and eaten by remittances. Right. And it, it's crazy. Like what we spoke about at the beginning is at the base layer, everything comes back to the money. Mm -hmm. And when you can fix the money, you can literally start to liberate and free people from traps and circular downfalls that they're in, in their monetary systems in these other countries um, by just giving them the freedom of access to a new form of information. Right. It, it's pretty incredible. And I mean, like you said, if you would have told somebody 15 years ago that first of all, a new form of money was going to be invented. And second of all, that form of money was going to help entire countries increase their GDP um, get remittance payments back to people that need them. Like everyone would have looked at you and called you crazy. And even right now, we still might get crazy. We, might, we still might be called crazy when we tell people like, now that El Salvador is accepting Bitcoin as legal tender, it's going to actually liberate the people of their country. Mm -hmm. But in, in six months, in a couple of years, I don't think anyone, that's not going to be a stretch to say anymore. Yeah. It'd it's be it's a an incredible to... achievement, right? Like, I mean, like, it's clearly not a toy anymore, right? Like, it's, a country has made it legal tender. There's d disputes about whether a country ought to have made it legal tender because it, it conflicts with what I said in my first article, <laughs> which is every, nobody will ever force you to choose Bitcoin. Uh, it, it, technically speaking, a legal tender law, it does maybe force some businesses to accept um, 
to accept Bitcoin. But it's, you know, maybe that's a topic for another conversation. But the fact that it's taken seriously at the country level, like, I mean, this thing was a joke when it started, right? It was a handful of nerds playing with a piece of software on your computer that created coins out of thin air, right? Like if you just ran it long enough, you got 50 of these worthless coins. And then somebody one day decided to bid 10,000 of these coins for two pizzas. And now, you know, fast forward, and we've come so far in such a short period of time that a country has declared it a legal tender that has declared it the money that people in that country can and must use. I mean, that's, that's a whole different level of achievement. And, and the fact that it's, it had achieved a market cap of a trillion dollars faster than any other corporation in history, again, it not being a corporation, but so it did it faster than any organized, effort-led, invested-in uh, entity without it. So, I mean, there's, just, there's a whole incredible world to be explored around the decentralization of the decentralization and decentralization clearly being a better way of governing things than having a head and having an authority. We talked about its unstoppability a little bit. We certainly talked about its incorruptibility. We haven't even talked about its creativity. Like how creative can the company be where there's someone in charge and that person has to have the vision. Like we all think of Apple and how creative and brilliant Steve Jobs was and how he built a culture in there that continues to try to be as creative as possible. But there's authority figures and there's decisions about what will be developed and what won't be developed. In, in Bitcoin, there's no decisions. There's no decision makers. Anyone in the world can try to do anything to innovate anyhow about any way they can about Bitcoin. And if it works, that's great. And if it doesn't work, lesson learned, right? Like, so like Bitcoin doesn't stand to fail because somebody tries something and it doesn't work. That person's idea stands to fail. But if it works, Bitcoin embraces it and people build on top of it and people build on top of it. So it's a very much like life evolving with intelligence because it's, it uses our brains as intelligence attempts. And anyone in the, nobody needs permission to say, hey, can I get this project approved? All right, if I got a good idea, I'm, I'm going out there and I'm doing it. If I got an idea for an article, I don't need to ask the editor of Bitcoin publication for permission to write the article. I write it. And if it's well received, great. And if it's poorly received, people either don't see it or they tell me I'm an idiot. But Bitcoin doesn't get hurt. Bitcoin might get helped. So everything, that's why there's this thing, this is good for Bitcoin, right? Like I, I do, someone does something without permission and either helps Bitcoin, which is good for Bitcoin, or there's a lesson learned, which is good for Bitcoin. That's why it's good for Bitcoin. Everything is good for Bitcoin because it's decentralized and a decentralized system, literally everything is good for it. Yeah, the collective uh, minds of all humans basically working on one project is pretty incredible right. because you're gonna, like we talked about earlier with, you're gonna create the best environment for and the most successful piece of equipment or piece of software or anything mm -hmm. if, every, if all of the best from around the world can work on yeah. it. Um, I was talking with Brandon Quidham the other day on a previous Love episode yep. and he incredibly, us. yeah, exactly. And it's so incredible the way you can start to look at the comparisons to a decentralized network, a truly decentralized network to the comparisons of mushrooms in the earth and how yep. they're starting to use the collective mind of all the other plants and animals mm -hmm. in the, in the ecosystem to work together and create the best, best path, best route, um, yep. best everything for nature. Um, and so that decentralization is absolutely key. And 
the open source, you know, it's like you just said, it's not one person who makes that yeah. decision. It's not you have an idea and you make the rest of the network adopt it. And then your idea is fallible and someone else can hack it. It's right. you pose your idea and the entire network has a chance to hack it. <laughs> and then they say, yeah. oh, we can't hack it. And it contributes to the system that we're running. Let's right. implement it. And let's have basically a vote of if we're going to implement it. It's this new and incredible way that humans are really going to start to like open up the ways in which they can achieve more yeah. because it's it's, it's, gonna... it's incredible. And I, I, I honestly, I could talk about decentralization and these higher order emergent characteristics of our civilization and of Bitcoin itself that come from decentralization. I think it, I think it's the I've said how many times on this podcast, it's the essence, right? It's the it's the core, but it's also everything that arises out of it. So Brandon's got this great series of articles on Bitcoin's the mycelium of money. I'm sure you, I'm sure you've got the notes to it length. Incredible. Um, a Gigi, if you haven't had him on yet, you should try to get him on. He, he once wrote an article, um, Bitcoin is alive, right? Proof of life, I think was the name of the article. And I just recently published one <laughs> called, which I think, Bill, I, I think it belongs in this in the series with with Brandon and Gigi's work, uh, because it's it's entitled "How Bitcoin is Like a Giant Cybernetic Meta Brain," and it speaks to the decentralization of how decisions get made in Bitcoin, and it actually explains how brains work and how the neurons in brains work, and it draws an analogy uh, to neurons in Bitcoin's brain. It the, the trick to reading this thing is I'm not talking about how we as Bitcoiners think about Bitcoin. I'm talking about how Bitcoin thinks. I'm saying like that the Bitcoiners who run full nodes and connect to each other on Twitter look a hell of a lot like neurons do in a brain. Right? They have we have the the Bitcoin core software on our node running the blockchain and the rules. That's like our DNA, and we have all these people who and so every neuron in your brain has a copy of the DNA. It's exactly the same. They're all on the same team. They're all trying to replicate the same thing. And every neuron connects to other neurons. Well, that's what we do on social media, right? Like we have all these people who follow us. And so we can transmit messages to them. That's what your neuron does. And your neuron receives messages from the, the other neurons that it follows, right? So that's just like in Twitter too. And so, and that's how brains are built. Brains are just these networks of these cells that carry the DNA that are connected to others and are connected to from others. And there's one way communication you, you can have a two-way loop if I connect to you and you connect to me as two neurons. Well, I've, so I've, I've just done this job that took me 20 minutes in the article to describe, to describe this. And I say, look at the phenomenon. I, I postulate, this is how, con what is consciousness, right? Consciousness doesn't exist in one single neuron in your head. I can't like find that neuron, pull it out of your head and you're no longer you. I could kill millions of neurons in your brain and you would still be you. You might forget a little something here or a little something there. But you might, but you'd be totally capable of relearning it, right? So your brain is this decentralized entity of neurons where any one neuron dies, your brain doesn't die, right? It ha and your consciousness, I postulate, this is not yet known, <laughs> is actually the emergent phenomenon of the, um, of the flow of information and electricity through all your neurons, right? And that's why you're, that's why if you've ever tried meditating, you realize you can't, your consciousness is constantly flowing. You can't snapshot your consciousness 
right? It's constantly flowing. It's constantly thinking. There's some flow. There's activity going on in your brain. Your consciousness is an active process. That's, that's what I argue is happening on social media between Bitcoiners. And it's distinct. And, and so I say, and in, in that happening, it's actually creating a meta-consciousness. And Bitcoin solves its problems using this brain. Take a look at the environmental. That's the example that I give. Take a look at the environment fight. Bitcoin is dirty. The accusations leveled against Bitcoin, including by Bitcoiners. And so Bitcoin needs to think of a solution to its problem. And what does it do? Individual neurons start transmitting ideas to other neurons. Those other neurons receive them, they modify them, they improve upon them, they retransmit them, they make memes out of them, they write articles out of it, they show up on podcasts communicating them, and the ideas evolve and we start to move to how do we get to clean energy. This mining council comes up with its thing, Venezuela, Venezuela, El Salvador comes up with its volcano mining. All these ideas come forward without any central point of organization. Any one of these people working on any one of these ideas could be killed and the idea wouldn't die. The consciousness wouldn't stop being. There's this process of awareness of the problem around it being processed by all of these individual neurons inside of it. So I don't want to take the analogy too far, but I think, I think isn't it interesting that this decentralized, organically forming system when confronted with problems and having to solve this problem, found that it used a construct that's similar to a brain. That, I mean, that, like, I don't want to make it seem too profound. I don't want to make it seem like we can, I don't think we can talk to Bitcoin. I don't, I don't, like, I don't think it's conscious in, in that sense. But the same kind of patterns that create consciousness in our brains maybe create consciousness in, um, for, for Bitcoin. And... Uh, but it's a, diff it's a different level of conscious, and I don't want to say consciousness, I want to say something conscious-like, it's, right, it's brain-like, it's conscious-like, it's life-like, it's mushroom-like, right? It's not a mushroom, it's not, it's not alive in, an, in the organic sense, it's not conscious in the human sense, but it's, it has a lot of similarities to these things because of decentralization. Well, and it's similar to what we see throughout history in the coolest of ways. So you think we have mushrooms, let's take mushrooms for an example. We have mushrooms which are Are we alive taking mushrooms? <laughs> excuse me excuse my language <laughs> I know this is uh, about to get really interesting <laughs> so let's look at mushrooms let's not take right. mushrooms so we have mushrooms right. as an example in the earth and we have the human brain as an example in life and yeah. you look back through history and probably the, one of the first times we start to see this is when you form the printing press because the printing press allowed information to travel from one civilization and then it connects to information from another civilization because they can transfer um, books that are written more quickly through words. And then over time and hundreds and hundreds of years, you move forward and you have the telephone. And then, you know, maybe a hundred years forward, we have the internet. And now, maybe, you know, what is it? 40 years after the internet, we have Bitcoin. So these processes are getting slower and slower and faster and faster as humans are able to use their collective intelligence in a more efficient route. Because the way that Satoshi was able to create Bitcoin was by combining the works of, you know, 12, 20 other people who had tried something similar over the past 20 years prior. Satoshi wasn't the first person to try and create cash on the internet. What he was, was he was the first person to put all of the pieces that had existed for 20 years already together in the right format to make it work. And so 
as we move forward in history, we start to have the collective human intelligence be more accessible for everyone around and able to use it in its best format possible. Right. It's pretty incredible to see you yeah. know how how far we've come as a civilization because right. you know 50 ish years ago when the yeah. internet's introduced we would have never guessed this yeah I, I want to make another point i want to go back why do i want to go back to something we were talking about before um you could because you talked about satoshi invented this thing and he invented it right he was the first person to invent it right uh and, and what he managed to do was invented in a decentralized way but what i want to go back to was your question about altcoins and there's a very famous saying about reinventing a particular invention. Like it's called reinventing the wheel. Exactly. So when was the wheel invented? Oh, I don't even want to guess a date. Um, do we know? Do we know? Yeah. Do we know who invented the wheel? It was so far ago. Or people probably didn't even have names. Ugh. Was the name of the guy who invented the wheel, or the woman who invented the wheel? Um, it doesn't need to be reinvented once it's invented you can't like it it exists and to this day cars have wheels and even airplanes need wheels for takeoff and landing so you you know you just, we just haven't come up with anything better to move stuff on land than wheels because the invention was good enough and you'd really need to come up with something way 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 better to replace it nobody's come up with something better than the wheel for moving stuff on land since the wheel was invented so long ago that we don't even know that people even had names. That's how long ago it was. And I, 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 this is the point on Bitcoin. Like you're coming around and you're creating a Bitcoin that has block times that are one, uh, like 15 seconds long, which creates all sorts of other problems. Like nobody needs it, right? We've got the wheel, like the wheel has been invented. And so you're reinventing the Bitcoin is just as stupid as trying to reinvent the wheel. It's just as useless. It's just as much of a distraction from the adoption of the wheel. Like imagine everyone was, instead of going, oh, the wheel, what a great invention. Let's use the wheel. It's like, wait, I got a better, I got a theory wheel. I got doge wheel. It's, yeah, it's not round. No, no, because I've got, I've, I've changed some of the assumptions. Instead of using pi to create it, to make it round, I've made it oblong. It's, it's oval. It's elliptical. How, how or it's triangular or it's, it's this wide, it's unnecessarily wide, or it's unnecessarily flimsy and narrow. This is what all the altcoin projects are. They're attempts to reinvent something that already works just fine, not to make it work, to sell it to an unsuspecting buyer who doesn't realize that we've already invented the wheel. So I just think it's a really good analogy there. I've written a children's book that I'm trying to find a, an illustrator for that, that has uh, this concept in it, but I think it's a useful concept for adults too, right? We don't know who invented Bitcoin, but it's good. We don't know who invented the wheel, but it's good. And we don't need to reinvent these things. That's not the punch kids book, but. <laughs> rather than reinventing the wheel, we can improve the wheel on the Bitcoin network. So if we look at the wheel as yeah. Bitcoin, you know, we can develop racing tires, which are lightning yes. network that go on top. Yes. We can develop right. off-road tires that yes. are, you know, X, Y, and Z, layer two, layer yeah. three. And we can um, build machines that use Bitcoin. We can build cars, we can build airplanes, we can build trucks, we can build all the uh, dollies, we can build chairs with casters on them. I'm just looking around. I can build a whiteboard that's movable because it's sitting on wheels. I, this table that I've got my computer on has wheels on, like there's wheels fucking everywhere, right? And there's, <laughs> and, and it's fantastic, right? And that's, where, that's the way we're gonna be looking at Bitcoin. None of these, people who you put wheels on all of these things that are around me here there's a wheel on the curtain 
that makes it go up. None of these people who used wheels said, I, we've got, like, let's throw away the idea of the wheel. We need something better. We need a smart one track. Like, just use the thing that works. Advanced civilization by using the thing that works to build something higher up from it rather than try to reinvent the thing that doesn't need to be reinvented. Exactly. It's, That's a mic drop moment. That, that was phenomenal. Uh, I, I love that. It's, it's just really look, looking at the, the base level of it because like you just said, we don't need anything new. We just need to make right. this one better. I mean, there's companies already on top of it that are having podcast apps that stream over the Bitcoin network. Yeah. We're going to have, we're going to have That's Netflix we on the, we're going to have Netflix right. on built on lightning. It's, yeah. Let's has, start has using this digital money, not have this competition over what digital money is that's inferior, right? Like have all, all this silliness around something that's not decentralized, that's not, no, that doesn't have a constant supply that's known, that isn't secure, that has leaders. Like why bother wasting all this? And we'll look back at these times and we'll say, oh, you know, it was necessary because it had to prove out that Bitcoin could withstand these silly attacks from these inferior concepts. But it'll also be looked back as it was a real waste because in hindsight, of course, Bitcoin was inevitable, right? And of course, Bitcoin was the thing we we're going to build everything on. And what a waste of time and energy and what a pity that so many people lost money that they knew that they wanted to be in this space, but they ended up putting it all on flipping pancake coin or yam coin or, or something that ultimately went nowhere or some NFT that they thought they could own a JPEG, but they knew that they couldn't own. Like, let, let's 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 build forward. And, and I think that's really what the Bitcoin movement is about, right? Like Bitcoin. And that's why Bitcoiners are so adamant and so passionate about let's stick with Bitcoin and let's and let's build on this. And it's not I, th I think they get a, I, one of the accusations is, well, they're just pumping their own bags, right? Like they own Bitcoin. So they just want to. They, that's not the thing at all. You start to get to know Bitcoiners. Right. And I, I wrote this one other article called Rich or Poor. Bitcoiners have what money can't buy. And I talked about it's not about like, no, it's so inappropriate in the Bitcoin community to ask another person, how much Bitcoin do you have? It's considered a terrible faux pas because we don't value each other on the net worth of somebody, right? Whereas if, if you type in um, how much into Google, it will complete it with is so-and-so worth, right? Like that's, that's all people ask in the fiat world on Google, right? How much is Elon Musk worth? How much is... What, what is Elon Musk's net worth? Like people don't say, right? What is Bill Gates's net worth? What is it Warren Buffett's net worth? We're not interested in what your net worth in Bitcoin is as measured in Bitcoin or as measured in dollars. We're interested in what you're doing for the network. You don't have to do anything. Nobody's holding a gun to your head. It's all your choice, as you brought up at the beginning. You can choose to do what you want to do. And that's really empowering. To be able to choose to do what you want to do, that's, I think that's the definition of freedom. It's very close to it if it's not bang on, um, you know, within reason, right? You can't, I can't choose to defy gravity because of the laws of physics thing again, right? right? And I can't choose to be useless and expect to live a wealthy life, but I can choose how much to engage. And I, and I know that I can work to have wealth and retain my share of that wealth under a Bitcoin standard, not under a fiat standard.
Definitely. Hey, I'm giving you all these mic drop moments. You're good. I know. I got to clip them perfectly and post, post them after <laughs> oh, I was this episode. Say, you could just wrap up. but <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, that, that I think that is a great place to kind of head out here because I think you and I could also probably talk for another four hours if needed. Sure. Um, but I, I appreciate the time. I got one final question for you yeah. today. Um, so if you could have dinner with any one person and dead or alive, and mm-hmm. we'll assume that they know, you know, the basics of the internet and that, that kind of stuff. But you right. could explain to them what Bitcoin means to you and what it could mean for humanity over a dinner. Who would over you pick? Over dinner? Yeah, so Is there a, a particular couple, could, goal in mind? No. So you, you can chat with them, just learn about them and their life, but also like kind of reiterate like how impactful Bitcoin can be to them and humanity. It's a... It's a tough question because I, I know what you're getting at is like, what powerful person do I want to speak to and try to persuade them about the impact of Bitcoin, perhaps? Not necessarily. Right. You know, it could be it could be your grandfather who worked a hard life and, mm, you know, c- couldn't save enough. And this could you know change the way he could save. It could be um, somebody overseas who was like working or their family was sending remittances and any, oh. anything like that. It could go any different direction. Hmm. I tend, you know, it's funny, like I tend not to think about conversations with the deceased um, or, or people in the past. I might, I might choose to talk to it, talk, uh, it's, it's just, it's so hard to talk, it's so hard to talk about even with people who live in the present day. Can you imagine going back and telling, oh, there would be, there'll be computers. Well, what are computers? Well, you'll carry them around in your pockets and they'll have all the world's information. So I just think it's too much over dinner to talk to someone in history. This is a really tough question for me. It's interesting. Maybe other people find it easier. You know, I, and I've, I've talked, I've had this conversation with anyone who'd listened to me in the world already. Um, it, it, I think maybe then it would be with an open-minded, influential world leader uh, who has their head screwed on right and is actually working authentically to say, let's let's be frank about the fact that the fiat money system is broken and let's not try to keep it running by putting bandages on it that just keep getting, that the blood keeps seeping through. Let's fix the system. Let's figure out how to, let's figure out how to fix it because we've got the solution. We just need to build the bridge to get everybody over to the other side or to the side of stability. I got, I do have one article in the Why Bitcoin series called Why Bitcoin is the Path to Economic Stability. And it, it basically says the fiat system is like, is like a boat in stormy water and Bitcoin is like a lighthouse. It's solid, it's there, it's predictable, it's stable. But if you're on the lifeboat, it looks crazy, you know, and you think you're stable. The light, the life lighthouse looks like it's got volatility. And that's that's what we really see when the economists say it has volatility. But my challenge in coming up with a name for you is I don't know who there is to talk to. And I think this is a bottoms up movement. I don't think it matters if I speak to one person. This is really what it's a. I don't think it matters if I speak to one person. I think this is inevitable. It's going to happen and it's not going to be happening because somebody speaks to someone influential. At some points in time, it will be like, I think it's a really remarkable moment that Jack Mahler's had his moment with Bukele, the president of 
El Salvador and but it seems like Bukele had already made up his mind. He was looking for, a, he, he was calling the dinner. He wanted to have a discussion about how to build the bridge to stability. And Jack was the right man to show up for that, for that meeting. So he even, he found Jack, right? Jack tells a story, like his phone rang while he was at a sushi restaurant. So it wasn't that Jack was chasing down the president. He was scared. He wanted a week to figure it out. So I don't think it matters who I speak to. I think what, as an individual, because this isn't about, one individual in power making anything. This is about all of us, one bit at a time, in a decentralized fashion, choosing Bitcoin one by one. This is, Bitcoin success comes from eight billion individual human beings choosing it because it's the best money ever. When they, whenever they're ready, ideally. I mean, it'll become so obvious that if, you know billions will end up choosing it at a time in the last moments because it was like, well, everybody else is using it, so I might as well use it too. Right? What choice do I have? People will say, but this. You have a choice. No, again, no, nobody's forcing you to use it. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to use anything else. So it becomes an obvious choice, right? It's, some choices become really obvious. But um, that's why that's why I don't have an answer for your question because I don't think it matters. That's valid. I, I think your explanation was great anyway, without giving those specific answers. So, um, Tomer, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for diving down Thanks all the rabbit me. holes and, and guiding us. Um, if you want to tell the people where they can find you, that'd be great. Sure. Uh, so at Tomer Strolite on Twitter or twitter.com slash Tomer Strolite. Um, TomerStrolite.medium.com for all my articles. I've got so many now, I got to figure out how to organize them on there, but take your time and sort through them. Uh, there's the White Bit Why Bitcoin the series has an index page that I've pinned near the top. Um, you can get all of the Why Bitcoin articles, including what bonus one. So all of them are three to four, two to three, two to four minutes long, except for one, which is a bonus one that I've written that I've put only on Swan Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin's published an ebook of um, of all the Why Bitcoin stories. So if you go to SwanBitcoin.com/slash/WhyBitcoin um, in exchange for your email address or a made-up email address, they will um, they will let you download uh, the ebook, which contains the bonus article called "Why Bitcoin Will End the Greatest Heist in Human History," something like that, which is a really neat article. But it's about six or seven minutes long. Um, well, that's enough. I mean, I have a podcast, uh, which is a really hardcore Bitcoin podcast. So it's for people who want to hear about self-sovereignty and who don't mind obscenity. And, and it's called For the Love of Bitcoin. And it really is about For the Love of Bitcoin. Like it, it's, um, it, it's a lot about that. I have another edgy uh, piece uh, called Satoshi and Me, which is um, in the May issue of Citadel 21. So if you go to citadel21.com and click on the May issue, the first story there is called Satoshi and Me, and it's a fiction, piece of fiction, a short story about a protagonist who falls down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and wishes they could meet Satoshi and finds a way to time travel and meet Satoshi. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's a little adult themed because um, it, has, it has sexual innuendo. There's no sex in it, but there's a, there's a love scene between the protagonist and Satoshi where their minds melt. And so it's, it's written in a, in a way that you can't, you can't perceive it any other way than sex. So it's, um, it, so that's a piece of creative writing that I've done. And I can, I continue to try to publish, um, something every single week, but I've been working on books more than just individual articles. And, uh, is, that should be enough for people to, <laughs> for, for a while. There's 25 articles in the Why Bitcoin series alone. So, plus but the bonus of, of, yeah, of 26. Yeah. Uh, Tomer's articles are all super great. They're easy, easy to digest. 
does a phenomenal job of really helping laying, laying things out from a, a base level and putting it in terms that the reader will understand. Um, I've read pretty much everything he's put out. I'll have links to everything in the show notes as, along with everything that we talked about today. Um, Tomer, I can't thank you enough. I really enjoyed well, this you, episode Eric. with you today and I look forward to future conversations. Super. It was a lot of fun to be here. I, it was a great conversation. You take care. Wonderful. Uh, well, we'll chat soon. I hope you have a good night. You too. Man, Tomer goes by the rabbit hole Sherpa as he's able to help guide people down the path to understanding Bitcoin. And we can definitely see why after that episode. I know we touched on a lot of higher level things today. Um, I hope you enjoyed and followed along. And as we're starting to take the training wheels off with uh, some of these guests that we have on the show. If you are enjoying what I'm putting out, please feel free to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes especially. Would definitely appreciate that. You can find me at E3BTC on pretty much all platforms. And my DMs are open if you have any questions, comments, or just want to chat. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back soon with more. Take us away, bro.